Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In this portion of the text of Matthew, Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin. Here is Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance, right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two men who came forward stated, This man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They're uh, misrepresenting what he said in John 2.19. Uh, in fact, what Jesus said in John 2.19 was, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Speaking about his own coming, uh, his own coming resurrection. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, of uh, the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. When the high, uh, then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? According, to, uh, according to, to Mark's gospel account of the same moment, um, they actually, uh, Mark 14, 65, they also blindfolded Jesus. Uh, to, to blindfold Jesus and to spit on him and ask him to prophesy and say who it is who, who had slapped him, who had struck him, uh, was sort of evoking Isaiah 11.3. Isaiah 11.3 is, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. And so in a mockery of Isaiah 11.3, they actually blindfolded Jesus. Um, in fact, this would a century later become the sort of the shibboleth, the testing of a man, um, uh, of a man who claimed to be the Messiah, uh, his name was Bar Kokhba, and they, they would uh, a century later actually uh, execute this man because of his claims to be a Messiah, but they, uh, they were dis uh, his claims were disproved based on his inability to uh, 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 judge by smell. So this was a thing that they did, you know, to, to blindfold a man and see if he really was the Messiah. That's what they did to Jesus, and it was sort of a mockery of Isaiah 11.3, or it could have been in their minds a legitimate application of the text. You'll see that the, high, the, that the high priest actually tore his robes in verse 65. What's striking about this is that it, he just violated Leviticus 21.10. Like Leviticus 21.10, the priest who is highest among his brothers, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and has been ordained to wear the clothes, must not dishevel his hair or tear his clothes. And so he actually violates Leviticus 21.10 when he proclaims uh, that Jesus has blasphemed. While disobeying Leviticus 21.10, he thinks he's obeying Leviticus 24.10-23. Uh, in this case, there's this, uh, the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father was among the Israelites, and then this fight uh, breaks out in the camp between the Israelite woman's son and an Israelite man. Her son cursed and blasphemed the name, it's Yahweh, 
uh, and they brought him to Moses. And so then God tells Moses in Leviticus 24 that this, this one who is cursed is to be brought outside uh, and all who have heard him lay their hands on his head and have the whole community stone him. That, that was prescribed when somebody committed blasphemy in Leviticus 24, 10. So that's what he thinks he is evoking when he wants Jesus to be put to death because of blasphemy. He, he wants to enact Leviticus, but while tearing his robe, he also violates Leviticus. Uh, uh, he also violates Leviticus. Jesus just quoted, uh, Jesus just quoted Psalm 110, the very first verse. In verse 64, you have said it. Okay, like, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He's been making this proclamation all the while. And what Jesus just points out is that you have said it, but he doesn't speak a word in his own defense. He's like a lamb before the shearers, he remains silent. We'll see this as well in Isaiah 53. So he doesn't speak in his own defense. He doesn't try to say anything to defend himself. What he says is, but I tell you in the future, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, we can see uh, Psalm 110 verse one. This is the declaration of the, uh, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, Wow. He has evoked the word of God in full power. Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel 7 verse 13. All right, that's where the Son of Man title comes from. And we see that title referenced 28 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so he tells them exactly that. He evokes Daniel 7, Psalm 110. The high priest rightly interprets this as a proclamation of himself as God. Trying to enact Leviticus, he actually disobeys Leviticus. But here is further proof that Jesus does, in fact, claim to be God. Now, what are you to do with that information? What are the lost people in your life to do with that information? It's sort of trendy and it's viewed as vaguely tolerant to have a high opinion of Jesus. To say that he was a nice guy, he was a good teacher, a historical figure, he taught us to love people. Um, that, and, and to leave it at that, that Jesus was a good moral teacher, or even believe that he was a miracle worker, um, and then stop short of actually confessing that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Son of Man, the one whose throne would never end, whose reign would be everlasting. It was prophesied all the way back in 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. Um, David has a son with Bathsheba. The son dies. Then he has another son with Bathsheba. Uh, that's Solomon. But there are these prophecies about Solomon that you can tell go beyond just Solomon. You can see messianic prophecy all the way back in 2 Samuel uh, when it basically with David and Bathsheba's rainbow baby, Solomon. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. You can see how it's commingled with the prophecy about Solomon himself, and it's also commingled with the throne that will last forever. You can see that Jesus is prophesied um, all the way back in, in 2 Samuel. So this, this, whole, uh, this whole beating that takes place, it also seems to kind of commingle what was prophesying Solomon with what was also prophesying Jesus, that he would be, he would experience blows, uh, that he would be beaten with rods. That's what happens here. The high priest tore his robes and he said he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered he deserves death and they spat in his face and beat him and others slapped him. 
to spit in someone's face was the most grotesque of insults. It was the worst gesture that you could possibly, that you could possibly make towards someone. He also, uh, uh, the, the high priest believes that he's doing everything above board. Um, we know based on John 18 that there's also, there's also another stop that they make en route to this viewing before the Sanhedrin. In John 18, 13, first they led him to Annas since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. So after Annas' house, now, um, he's brought, uh, now he's brought to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and elders had convened. And we know that Peter is kind of hanging out and and watching from a distance, all right, to the right of the high priest's courtyard. And he goes in and he, he sits among the servants to kind of see what the outcome is. This is setting the stage for Peter's denial. It's right there by the courtyard where this sham of a hearing is taking place. So the chief priest, the whole Sanhedrin, they're, they're trying to find false testimony. They're willing, they find some people who are willing to lie, but it's not sufficient. They have no prescription in Old, in Old Testament Levitical law for crucifixion. That never, that was never in God's will. The Romans were the ones who had crucifixion. The Jewish authorities wanted Jesus to be crucified. And so in a way, the blood is on their hands. They also can't be accused of an insurrection against Caesar here if Rome carries it out. So they want to find some way in which they can pin an accusation of insurrection on Jesus. They have people who are willing to come forward and lie and bear false witness, but the only one who comes close is this one who stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's in verse 61. And uh, it's a misapplication, a misunderstanding uh, of what Jesus said in John 2, 19. Here's Mark 4, 14, verses 55 through 59 that uh, provides some additional insight to what happened right here. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him and the testimonies did not agree. Right? It's like what we do with carbon-14 dating. Oh, it doesn't fit with what we want. Throw it out. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not, did not agree even on this. So the closest that anybody came was this accusation that Jesus was planning on dismantling uh, the temple that was made with human hands and then rebuilding another one. So all these people are eager to pile on. As people, especially because of our depraved nature, when we get into a big crowd, we tend to behave differently. Something just happens psychologically and like we just kind of go nuts in a crowd. There's something about the mob mentality where people start coming up and just lying. I mean, they're compelled to do stupid stuff. Like we've seen it where, where uh, mobs and riots just escalate exponentially and people end up doing things that would felt unimaginable that afternoon and now here they are and these people are giving in to the riot mentality god however is sovereignly orchestrating everything god is fulfilling scripture jesus has just proclaimed daniel 7 and psalm 110 even as they spit in Jesus's face, as they beat him, as they slap him, as they mock him saying, prophesy to us, Messiah, who was it that hit you? In all of this, God is sovereign. Remember yesterday's devotion, Jesus had the power to bring about 72,000 or even 144,000, depending, depending on which definition for legion you use, uh, angels to come and end the whole thing. Every spit, every 
every slap, every strike, all of the mockery, all of it would come to an end. Jesus endured knowing this was for the glory of God. Take a moment, behold the brutality of the cross, the injustice of the sham of a trial. This is one of multiple hearings, in fact. This is going to keep on going. Uh, that we've seen Annas, now we're before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Next up, I, I believe, is Pilate and even a representative from Herod, and then back again. Like it, He's going to get bounced around everywhere because this is such a sham. They're just trying to pin false accusations on him, and he is being degraded, shamed, humiliated by a riotous mob bearing false witness against him. If you've been publicly shamed, you've been publicly ridiculed, if people have borne false witness about you in such a way that was humiliating for you, would you take it and redeem it as a glimpse of the sufferings of Christ? We still publicly shame people and we pile on. John Ronson has a book about this, so you've been publicly shamed. It's a mentality that still exists today. We did it to Jesus and he was perfect, then surely we can do it to people who actually sin, who have actually messed up. This was, this was one of the more difficult sufferings of the crucifixion. They haven't even physically gotten as brutal as they will. This was the emotional pain of the crucifixion. He's been betrayed by Judas with a kiss, one with whom he shared bread, as was prophesied. His disciples have all scattered. Only Peter lingers in the courtyard outside. John will be by the cross, but they've all gone astray. The shepherd has been struck and the sheep have scattered, just as Zechariah prophesied would happen. Here's Jesus. And the people who should have known him the best are the ones who are trying to find some coherent false testimonies to bear against him. And the one who's supposed to have the authority over the whole thing is trying to enact Leviticus and then violates Leviticus by tearing his robe. All of this is orchestrated according to the sovereignty of God. Even amidst the chaos, and the riotous mob, God is sovereign, God is in control, God will use even this, this thing that is way off the rails, God is going to use it in accordance with His sovereign plan to bring about the atonement for the sins of everybody who believes in Him. Take a moment beholding the emotional brutality of all of this, the injustice as it were for the whole thing, and thank Jesus for enduring it on behalf of those who call on His name. Take a moment to pray now.